0: Good morning, friends. Uh, It's been a great service so far, crosses and kazoos. could, like, be the name of our kids' ministry or something. I think that'd be cool. Well, we have been on a Lenten journey together for uh, several weeks now, over a month, and our theme has been practicing peace. We looked at it from all these different angles, and as I thought about it this week, I thought of how the word peace has become one of those words in our society that is kind of in danger of losing its meaning. It's overused. What does it mean anymore? So I included a quote in our guide today from Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Maybe you've read the letter. It's a great letter. I recommend that you read it. But if you look at the front uh, inside of, of your guide, you'll see the quote there. I'm going to read just a piece of that quote, which is just a piece of the longer letter he writes, and he writes it to religious leaders, by the way, which I always found fascinating and appropriate for me to read. But he writes, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. I almost want to pause there and say we hear the voice of God in the reading of these words. (laughs) Thanks be to God. I'd like to talk this morning for a few minutes about practicing positive peace. Practicing positive peace. We could say that the pinnacle of Jesus' life work begins with the story, the events that Aaron read for us. It's the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, and it's the beginning of what we call Holy Week, in the Easter story. Maybe you've heard this story of the triumphal entry and Jesus coming in many times in your life, and I had too, but this week I took time to reflect on the five characters or the five groups that are in it. I'd like us to take a look at them together and see if we can't find ourselves in our world today in those five characters. May God give us eyes to see. The first group we encounter in our text is a group of pilgrims, A group of Jews who are on their way to Jerusalem for an annual gathering called Passover, a holiday they observed every year. It wasn't the most important holiday in the Jewish year, but it was the one most pregnant with the seeds of social change. Every year, they gathered as a way to reach back into their collective cultural heritage and join hands with their ancestors, slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh, so that they could be reminded of, A, what it's like to be a slave, we need to remember that, what it's like to be exploited, what it's like to be on the outside of power, and B, to be reminded that they follow the God who liberates us from all the Pharaohs of this world the God who is always calling us from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from being a lonely wanderer to belonging to a family. Every year, they came together to reassert their identity and to say, we are not a people who live under pharaohs. In fact, it's a betrayal of our heritage and to our God to do so. They didn't gather for nostalgic purposes or just to remember the good old days which is so often what religion can become, a regressive psychological defense against doing the work required for change and growth. Instead, they gathered to ask, in what ways are we still slaves under Pharaoh today? We might say that the Passover holiday is the opportunity each year that they took and that we have to do spiritual spring cleaning of all the Pharaohs in our life. And this brings us to the second character in our story, which is, of course, Pharaoh. He's not mentioned explicitly, but he's in the subtext here. The Pharaoh plays himself in the Exodus narrative that serves as the subtext for this story, and the Romans play the part of Pharaoh in the time of Jesus. The Romans made a really good Pharaoh. They ruled with an iron fist and had a history of brutally putting down anything that even smelled like a revolt. There's a story of the Romans leveling the city of Sephora around when Jesus would have been six years old because of an uprising there and how they crucified all the men of the city, leaving them hanging on crosses along the roads going in to the city as a message, a deterrent to anyone who would dare to stand against them. It was common for them to bring in extra troops into Jerusalem during Passover and to even have a military parade during the time of Passover in Jerusalem just to flex their muscles, not unlike nations do today. Who are the pharaohs of today? It's a good question, right? It's easy just to do a history lesson and talk about pharaoh then. The harder work is to say, who are the pharaohs of today? Lately, I've been reading the scholar and theologian walter wink i highly recommend him he's fantastic but uh, he would call pharaoh and every iteration of pharaoh the domination systems of this world in his work he chronicles and he describes how domination and violence have existed in the human species since the beginning of recorded history and even before that in many of our creation and origin myths and stories that you find around the world The Jewish creation story in our Bible is distinct because it doesn't include violence and bloodshed in the origin, but we've kind of turned that on its head and focused almost entirely on what we interpret as humanity's right to dominate creation rather than our responsibility to care for it, and that's what Joe preached about a couple weeks ago. Wink would say a domination system is any system that dehumanizes and imposes oppression On others. Even worse, he would say it trains the participants to accept and uphold the system itself. We've made great strides forward with uprooting the domination systems of this world. Democracy was a great leap forward, but we seem to inventively find myriad ways to create and maintain domination systems in our world. Our country was largely built on the domination systems of slavery and genocide, and these systems still operate in some ways today in, for example, our justice system. We currently live under the domination system of the fear of terrorism. At any moment, in any setting, our schools, our places of worship have become frequent targets. And this fear is motivation for supporting the domination system of the militarization of our police and the proliferation of military style weapons among our population. Domination systems are all around us and often behind a lot of our actions. Status and status symbols are one of the most prolific tools of the domination systems in our society. And here's where I kind of start meddling (laughs) into a lot of our lives. Brands are symbols that tell others where I stand in the hierarchy of the domination system. My physical appearance, whether I have teeth that are straight and white and without gaps, that tells people where I stand in the domination system. My body shape, the lightness or darkness of my skin color, the age of my clothes, where they came from, all of these things communicate one's standing in the domination system and, in fact, uphold it. They also uphold the domination system that the first world countries impose on the rest of the world, requiring inexpensive materials and labor to keep this system going. Our neighborhoods and type and appearance of our homes might do the same thing. The escalating cost of homes in this area is a domination system that I participate in and many of us participate in and in fact uphold. In fact, I'm doing it right now by trying to get my silly, Saint. Augustine grass to grow and make my property worth more. I'm upholding the domination system in many ways there by using resources on grass. Um, I'm happy to see my home's market value increase so I can get more money for it when I sell it, but then I protest the increase of its tax appraisal value because then I have to pay a higher percentage of the cost of public services like education. Meanwhile, Communities around us are being priced out, uprooted, and separated by these escalating home costs. It's a domination system. Sometimes in life, in this domination system, we take a job or a role in the domination system because we need its benefits. We're pragmatic. I'm reminded of military members I've met who might have serious reservations about serving in the War Department, but nonetheless, they are unable to purchase health insurance or fund an education otherwise. They feel captive to the domination system. I'm reminded of a man I would visit with at a local community clinic in Austin who was in serious medical trouble because of his uncontrolled diabetes. In the course of conversation, he shared that he works long shifts as a dishwasher at a restaurant in town and that he doesn't take the time he needs to eat properly, to drink water, to rest his body, to take his insulin, to check his blood sugar. He doesn't do these things. He shared that when he asked for a break to do these things, he was told by his manager that sure, you can take the break, but there's a long line of other people like you who are willing to do your job without breaks. So you decide you can take a break or not. It's a domination system. How many of our service-related industries are dominated systems like this one? Do those who clear and clean our plates at a restaurant make a livable wage? I know, I know. If we paid them more than we couldn't afford the food or there would be no incentive for them to find a better job, I get it. This is, of course, the dilemma and the binary thinking that upholds domination systems and keeps us all captive to it. Domination systems want us only to see two options, They want us to live in a false, either or all or nothing dichotomy. This is how Pharaoh and all the modern iterations of him continue to exist and operate in our world today. They only require that we practice a negative peace, that we don't create tension. I bet each of you have examples of domination systems that I don't have time to mention today. But that's the second character in our story, Pharaoh, or the domination systems, or Rome of this world. The third character in our story is Jesus. Jesus. Jesus standing in stark contrast to Pharaoh and Rome and every other domination system we can think of. Here he comes, imagine if you can, here Jesus comes sauntering into Jerusalem, a place that should have been the heart the spiritual center of people's lives, but instead it had become a boiling cauldron of political tension and the center of competing domination systems. Here he comes on, of all things, a donkey. An animal of agriculture, not a war horse or in a chariot where you would expect to find royalty. Instead, a donkey, no, 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 worse, a borrowed donkey. He's not even on his own donkey. He's on a borrowed donkey, walking into the eye of the political and religious storm of the century. And as I thought about him this week and I pictured the paradox, the silly image of this man coming into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, I was reminded of the unknown. Tiananmen Square protester who, on June 5th, 1989, I'm sure you've seen this iconic image, he stood in front of a column of four tanks the morning after the Chinese military had suppressed protests by force. He's come to be called Tank Man. You could Google the image if you want. It's an incredible image, but I, I wish we would just call him human because we are most human and we are most alive when we stand against the domination systems Of this world if you do google him later or if you recall take a close look at that iconic photo there he stands white shirt black pants holding two grocery bags one in each hand as if you know to say I didn't really plan on this but here I am in front of four tanks I didn't really plan on this I was just coming from the grocery store but here I am this going on and somebody had to do something. Who accidentally became an icon for nonviolent active resistance against evil, standing there, not even on a borrowed donkey like Jesus, just with two grocery bags. Next in the story, we have Jesus followers. The story says it was a whole multitude of disciples. I don't know how many there would have been. They would have been traveling in a large group for safety and for community. And it says they began singing, perhaps discordantly, who knows, but what mattered was that they were singing, singing free as birds do, praising God that here in their midst was one that they could trust with their hopes, their voices, their children's future, their lives. Singing. Here was one who represented a viable alternative to the domination systems of their world. The way Luke tells the story, they were taking off their jackets, their cloaks, most likely their only one, and laying them on the ground, doing what they could to lay out an odd hack, uh, ad hoc patchwork red carpet. On the ground, laying it out, some of the other storytellers report how the crowd began cutting and waving palm branches, a symbol of victory, a symbol of the Roman goddess Nike or the Greek goddess Victoria or victory, those are all around here this morning. There's a lot of political symbolism here, and as if all this wasn't enough, the song they were singing was about a new king walking into Jerusalem, which is probably why we get introduced to the next set of characters, the Pharisees. They only get one line in our story this morning, but it is poignant. It says Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. The Pharisees were saying, you all need to chill. You need to calm down, quiet down, simmer down now. Have you ever wondered why would they do this? Maybe, maybe they didn't like their own power and place in the domination system being challenged. They already had to deal with their occupiers, the Romans. They had to deal with another Jewish group, a group of elites, the Sadducees. They had to compete against Greek philosophies and the Greek gods that had been assimilated into Roman culture and society and possibly Jewish life as well. And now this guy, we got another person to compete with, this guy Jesus too? Uh, No, I don't think so. Or maybe they knew that Rome would not hesitate to crush anything that looked like a challenge to the domination system, along with anything that might be affiliated with it. And the palm branches and the singing, it's just too much. Maybe the Pharisees were saying, look, Jesus, I'm gonna level with you. Your people and our people are both brown-skinned Jews who worship in the same place. Y'all better chill, because we're not taking heat for you guys acting like this. So, maybe it was self protective. We are prone to do this. We found our safe little haven in the domination system, our five by five cubicle, our benefits, our place, our path where we get by and we'll be damned if somebody's going to ruin that for us now. The Pharisees here seem to be more devoted to order than to justice. They prefer the negative peace, an absence of tension, to a positive peace which is the presence of justice. Maybe you can think of somebody in your life who plays this role. Maybe at times it's you. But it leads them to say to Jesus, you better shut them up, Jesus. Can you imagine that? The domination system has taken everything from these people, their land, their rights, their dignity, and now they also want it to take their voices. Their voices. The domination systems of this world, they want all of us, every bit, every part, and especially our voices. Like the man I visited with in the clinic, how dare he ask for a break? Like Colin Kaepernick, how dare he give voice to people of color? Like those who might say, me too, and accuse those in power. Like the child who cries and is told, you better stop crying or I will give you something to cry about. Domination systems tell us uh, when we may speak, if we may speak, and what we may say. So the Pharisees say, tell your disciples to be silent. And Jesus says to them, wow, take their voices. Listen, if they are silent, the stones would shout out. It's as if he's saying, you can take their voices, but this system is so rotten, so dehumanizing, that if need be, even the stones beneath our feet, like the soil that cried out about Abel's murder in the beginning, that soil will cry out again. It will shout that a new blessing, a new domination-free order is breaking into and toppling this one right now. I imagine I don't know, but I like to imagine that Jesus didn't even stop his borrowed donkey to have this conversation with the Pharisees. He just kept sauntering on. I imagine that, like our Tiananmen Square prophet, Jesus sees the tanks and he remains resolute, knowingly walking into the talons of the Roman eagle, walking into the fury of religious leaders being displaced. Walking into the fear and bloodlust of a mob trained by the domination system to cannibalize anyone who would dare disrupt the negative peace. Here's Jesus on his borrowed donkey walking into all of this, walking into what we call Holy Week. Will you follow him on this path? May God give us grace, may God give us God's Spirit so that we may take this journey with him. Amen.